You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. All right. Check one, two. Is this on? All right. You ready for up there? Let's do this. See what happens here. coming in from all over the globe, confirming it as true. To say that the world is in a state of shock this morning would be to understate the situation. The event seems to have taken place at the same time all over the world, just about 25 minutes ago. Suddenly and without warning, literally thousands, perhaps millions of people just disappeared. New eyewitness accounts of these disappearances have not been clear, but one thing is certainly sure. Millions who were living on this earth last night are not here this morning. Speculation is running high that some alien force from outside our system has declared war on the planet, and some feel it to be a spectacular judgment of God. So I'm glad that you guys got to introduce yourselves to each other because uh, the end is here and you may not get another chance. So I'm glad that some of you know each other's names now at least so when the rapture happens you've got a rapture buddy. Does anybody else wonder why there was a CB radio in the, in the bathroom sink? That, that actually wasn't a CB radio. If you're, that is actually what uh, razors used to look like, electric razors. Apparently, you could talk to your buddy next door and shave your face at the same time. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Silly, silly, silly movies. So, I am, uh, I, I'm not quite as, uh, I don't know what the right word is for this. Prepared? Is that the right word? I feel prepared, but eschatology is such a big subject that when you, when you approach something like this, to walk in to say that, hey, I want to teach you about eschatology and to do that lightly and to pretend like you know everything about it, uh, that is extremely foolish. And so I don't want to come off as a fool. So what I'm just going to say is that this is a gigantic subject. That's why Joe decided to break it into two months. And then um, I was foolish, I feel, to, to say yes so hastily when he said, hey, do you want to kick off the end times for me? And I said, yes, of course I do. So today we are talking about a little bit about the end times. So in 1988, actually after that movie was made, I was 10 years old. Show of hands, 
Who was alive in 1988? All right. More people than I actually expected. All right. Who was alive in 1975? I did that just to make fun of Brandon Shoup, actually. <laughs> Brandon actually had a, had a great point right before this. He thought that we should um, be talking about jazz because eschatology is the, is the only study that we do that has scatting right in the middle of it. So I, I didn't think it was that funny, but I, I wanted to honor him, but I repeated it. That's true. So in 1988, I was actually 10 years old. I remember um, driving to school with my mom, and I went to a Christian school and for, for my grade school years. And I remember something on the radio prompting me to say, Mom, what, what are they talking about? And she said, well, somebody wrote this book saying that today or in the next couple of days that the rapture is going to happen, that, that Jesus is going to return, and all the people that believe in him are going to be taken up. Now, I, I went to a Presbyterian church growing up, and so you pretty much start learning about eschatology from the time you're three in a Presbyterian church because they're extremely Calvinistic, and they want you to know that if you don't believe, you will not be raptured. There's no such thing as an age of, uh, of accountability in Calvinism or in a Presbyterian church, so they want to make sure that you know what's going on as early as possible. So I had heard about this before I was 10 years old, but I had not realized that people actually were trying to predict when it would happen. And so she explained someone had written a book called 88 Reasons That Jesus Christ Will Return in 1988. Um, Joe Kirkendall actually has a copy of this book on his shelf. If you'd like to borrow it sometime, I'm sure that you can stop by and ask him for it. It was written by a guy named Edgar Wisenott, and I'm just going to read for you part of Edgar's Wikipedia page. Edgar C. Wisenott, September 25th, 1932, May 16th, 2001, was a former NASA engineer and Bible student who predicted the rapture would occur in 1988, sometime between September 11th September 13th. He published two books about this, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, and On Borrowed Time. Eventually, 300,000 copies of 88 Reasons were mailed free of charge to ministers across America, and 4.5 million copies were sold in bookstores and elsewhere. Wisenant was quoted as saying, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. And if there were a king in this country, and if I could gamble with my life, I would stake my life on this time period in 1988. So, Wisenant's predictions were taken seriously in some parts of the evangelical Christian community as the date approached. Regular programming on the Christian Trinity Broadcast Network was interrupted to provide special instructions on preparing for the rapture. 1988, the weeks leading up to September 11, 1988, the Trinity Broadcasting Network changed their programming to give directions for us Christians on how to prepare for the idea that Jesus was returning 
next week. Uh, I don't know why. I'm assuming that for some great reason he was a NASA engineer, very, very smart. But for some reason, he didn't take literally the verse in Mark 13, 32 that says that no one knows the hour, that no one knows when the time comes. But that, of course, did not stop 4.5 million people from buying the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 19. 88. There's something about the end that excites us. There's something about the end that makes us want to know more. Of course, when it didn't happen, Wise Not decided not to stop there. Of course, he didn't end his life as he would have wagered. He actually uh, went on to predict uh, that uh, the rapture would occur in 1989. He, uh, he came out with a not as a effective, not as popular sequel, um, aptly titled 89 Reasons. Jesus will return in 1989. I am not making this up. He came out with another book in 1993, another book in 1994. Some of his biggest critics post 9-11 actually say, I mean, he died in May of, of 2001, some of his big, biggest critics are actually glad he died before 9-11 because he would have decried September 11th was his day. September 11, 2001, what happened? The World Trade Centers get hit by planes. What a cataclysmic event for someone to say, look, the rapture is beginning. Something big is happening. But on that day, when I was 10 years old, I didn't sit around at my desk all day waiting for the end to happen, looking around, wondering which of my fellow Christian classmates would still be sitting at their desk at the end of the day, though I be raptured. At the end of the day, I, I hadn't been waiting all day, but there's still, listen, there's still a little bit of a disappointment when you know that so many people have bought into an idea that it's actually going to happen, there's a piece of you that wonders if it's going to happen. I mean, I am... A Cubs fan. I am a Cubs fan. Every single year, the new year happens. And what does a Cubs fan say at the beginning of the year? This is the year. This year is going to happen. This is the year. And generally speaking, I believe that this is the year for about the first half of the season. Because without fail, the Cubs will end up being in first place for a number of weeks during the first half of the season. The second half of the season magically comes around, and they will never be in first place again for the rest of the season. Somehow there will be some kind of mad dash to make us think that they will make it into the playoffs. We will get our hopes up. Those hopes will be burned. And if by some miracle they do make it into the playoffs... And there's a feeding frenzy of the idea that they might make it. Everyone starts bringing out goats into the street because of the goat curse that apparently is on the Cubs. They get black cats and they become friends with it because there's a black cat curse on the Cubs. But even if they make it, we've been disappointed so many times that something gets into us that we kind of expect them to fail. We, we kind of expect for the outfielder to go and for for some stupid fan to reach out 
and grab a ball that could have been caught by our outfielder. We've learned that our expectations might actually be dashed. And so many stories that we love have this element of waiting built into them. Think about it, okay? Lord of the Rings. We're waiting for a king to come. We're waiting for a new king. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. They're waiting for these, the four sons and daughters of Adam to come, right? The Matrix. The Matrix is waiting for the one. There's so many stories that are built off this idea of waiting for this thing. And in all these stories, like me with the Cubs, a large part of the characters in these stories have waited so long that they've actually stopped believing in the literalness of it happening. We begin to believe technically that it will happen, but we stop believing presently that it will happen. I mean, by a show of hands, how many of you believe that God can heal someone that is blind? By a show of hands, how many of us have prayed over someone and seen their blindness actually healed? A couple of us. But for most of us, we haven't done those things. There are so many things about our faith that we believe because it's in the Bible, but when it comes to the daily walking out of what we do, we don't actually believe it. We see someone that's blind, and we don't necessarily pray for them. We see someone that is sick. We see someone that is poor. We see all these things. And we believe that Christ will return, but we don't necessarily live each day as though Christ will return. Do me a favor, open your Bibles to Matthew 25. This is only one of many, 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 many stories that Jesus tells about what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's describing something or someone returning. He's describing what that's, what's that like. So Matthew 25, 1 through 13 says this. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish took no oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all lay down and slept. At midnight, they were aroused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and welcome him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, They stood outside calling, Sir, open the door for us. But he called back, I don't know you. So stay awake and be prepared because you do not know the day or hour of my return. This is only one of many stories that Jesus tells that he actually ends with the phrase, so stay awake. The Bible seems to put a lot of emphasis on the idea of being ready. Uh, Jesus talks in the book of Mark 
about seeing signs, being able to know that a fig tree is about to bear fruit. So we ought to also be able to look at the times that are around us and be able to tell that something is coming. But what exactly is it that we are supposed to be ready for? So this is the moment where I want you guys to kind of, what are the big words that we've all learned throughout our lives that are connected to the idea of eschatology? And let's talk about those words a little bit because I think that it's easy to say that in those words are found part of the answer of what it is we are supposed to be ready for. So what are some of the words that you know that are related to the idea of eschatology? Just shout them out. Rapture. Tribulation. Ah, Antichrist. All right. We'll just give him a Kirk Cameron. All right. Who else? Any, any, any other words related to, say? Afterlife. All right. Reaping, all right. Very good. New heaven and earth. That's H and E, not H and M. Let's see. Uh, what was the last one? All right. Okay. Judgment. Second coming, we already have Antichrist up here. We don't need to, believe me. Second coming. What about... Um, Alright, separation, that probably fits into judgment. What about uh, the idea of uh, a millennium? You guys heard about that, right? So say a thousand years. A thousand year reign. Okay. So, now in this... Alright, so we actually have... With this... With this tribulation here, okay, we, we've heard pre-trib, right? Have you ever heard of that? Pre-trib is the idea that Christ will rapture us prior to a seven-year period on earth that is kind of a living hell here on earth. Then there is mid-trib, the idea that half of it will happen, and then Jesus will look down and say, Ah, they've had enough. Come get us. Then there's post-trib. The idea that all Christians will endure an entire seven-year tribulation where there will be persecution, will be killed and persecuted for our beliefs. And then those who are still alive will be raptured. This guy will be no good. He'll want us to have one of these. This guy will try and save us. <clears throat> There's also a few different beliefs about this here. Okay? A thousand years. It's what they call the millennium. There are, well, basically four basic words that come along with millennium. Okay? So there is, let's see, a dispensational millennium. Okay? A dispensational millennium is the idea that rather than something happening a thousand years starting, 
It's the idea that just like the seven churches in the book of Revelation, how each letter was sent to seven different churches, it's an idea that there are seven different time periods that fall within a thousand year period in which God will do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. That is dispensational. The next one is, what's the next one? Well, my favorite is amillennial. And then there is a post-millennial and pre-millennial. So the idea that uh, there's the pre-millennial is that all of the judgment and all of the, the second coming stuff and all the antichrist stuff and all the tribulation stuff will happen before a thousand year reign. And there's post-millennial, the idea that it'll all happen after a thousand years. And then there's amillennial. Amillennial would basically tell you that Tribulation is more of a deduction that we have created, that all of what the Bible has to say about a rapture and a tribulation is something that is very cryptic. It is a part of end-time literature, and so it isn't necessarily taken literally. And so in Amillennial would say that there isn't going to be a thousand-year anything, because when you believe in a pre- or post-millennial, you actually believe in the idea that Satan will be jailed up for a, a thousand years, that we'll have a thousand years of peace, and then for whatever reason, Satan will be let out of jail to try and trick us one more time, and then there'll be the final judgment, and then he, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. But some people believe this idea of a millennium in the sense that all of the things that we believe that will happen over a long course of time will actually happen at once. So if you've ever heard Pastor Glenn talk about having signs, signposts of hope, this idea, or if you've read anything by N.T. Wright, um, that points at the idea a little bit more, less that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation, or that there will be a rapture in which we are taken and left, and that there will be unbelievers left on the earth. And it's more the idea... That it will all happen at once. That Christ will return. That we may be caught up in the sky with Him. But the reason we are caught up in the sky with Him is to turn right back around and come back to earth for Him to have His judgment. And the idea is that Scripture says so many different things about the end times. It gives good reason that when I was growing up in the church that I grew up in, that there were a lot of arguments about pre-trib, post-trib, what kind of millennium is it going to be? Is it going to be a literal thousand years, or is it not going to be a thousand years? Because in one part, Scripture will say this, in another part, Scripture will say this, and there's enough Scriptures that you can put together to, to build this is the way to believe, and there's enough Scriptures to put together to say that this is the way to believe, and there's enough Scriptures over here to maybe deduce that it is something else. What I'm counting on is, and, and I know Joe's going to do this, is that Joe's actually going to go into more depth about the ideas of millenniums, about rapture, about tribulations. What I want to talk about a little bit more today and give you guys the chance to talk about around your tables is this phrase that Jesus gave us, stay awake. If, this, if all of this is part of the thing that we're supposed to stay awake about, then what does it actually look like for us to stay awake? 
I don't want to spend today having us kind of pit against each other about, well, I'm pre, I'm post, I'm mid, and henceforth. What I want us to discuss today is that no matter what it is that you believe about all of the things that are up on this whiteboard, what does it mean to stay awake? What does it mean to be aware? Because I think one of the dangers about all this stuff is that over the last century especially, but at the very least the last few hundred years since the Great Enlightenment, we've turned a lot of this into an issue of fear. We've turned a lot of this into what, if you guys are familiar with Donald Miller, he talks about how we've basically turned a lot of what we believe is Christianity into the same thing that marketing companies do. That marketing companies realize that what they have to do is to build a certain amount of fear in you that you're missing something and then show you quickly how they can solve the problem that you have. In the 14th century, Dante wrote a poem called Dante's Inferno in describing what a tormental hell would look like. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards, a great American evangelist, had a sermon called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. At some point, instead of an excitement about being with God, it got shifted to a little bit a fear of not ending up in hell. And I'm sure that you guys discussed this a little bit the last month about what happens after you die. Hell became the crux. People needed fire insurance. It was no longer about learning to love a loving God, and it was more about fearing an angry one. And most of that has to do with the Enlightenment, but a lot of it also has to do with the modern era. And I actually, I envy a lot of you to a certain extent, because of when you were born. That might sound weird. But when you look at generations, I was born on the tail end of a generation that was still considered very modern. Most of you were born at the beginning or the middle of a generation that was very open and easy and comfortable with the idea of having multiple truths sit next to each other and not feeling the need to argue that you were absolutely right or that you were absolutely right. So you are actually, in my opinion, very well prepared to discuss something like eschatology because you are going to have people that, that very much so believe one thing and very much so believe the other. And I think that your generation has been a little bit more prepared to be ready to be okay with the idea that the other person is going to believe something that you don't believe. The thing that we do have in common, no matter what it is that you believe, is that Christ is going to return. And the rest of the month is going to be discussing maybe what that will actually look like. One other thing I want to, sh- want to say about the modern era, and one of the reasons that we've turned this discussion of eschatology into what it can become, is because I mentioned this the last time I met, I, I discussed a parable called the crazy farmer. The idea that that God paid everybody the same amount no matter what time that they started to work. We also discussed the parable of the wedding feast. The idea that both good and bad were invited into the wedding feast and at the end that God was the one that sorted out who belonged at that wedding feast 
And who didn't? Well, in the modern era, we have gotten to a place where we like it to be black and white. This is, this is the thing that you're a little bit more comfortable with gray. But the modern era made everything black and white. That's why the idea of the end times became such an argument. We're not always comfortable with letting God be the judge. Who in this room feels like they're never judgmental? I mean, how many of you ever been cut off on the road by somebody and you immediately think the worst things your mother would be so ashamed of you thinking about the person that just cut you off, right? And you don't know if the person that just cut you off is rushing to get their wife to the hospital or if they've just had a really bad day. You have no idea what is going on in the mind of that person that just cut you off. But we, for some reason, there's something about us that wants to become the judge. I think a great example of this is our judicial system. We, we have someone that will commit a particularly heinous crime. And they, they go through the trial, and let's say that the death penalty isn't an option in their state. We don't give this person that has done this heinous crime a single life sentence. No. We give them 99 life sentences to be served consecutively. You've heard this, right? It's been in the news before where someone has received more life... A life sentence, it means that you live in prison for your entire life. But we as human beings want to judge so much that what we are actually saying is that if you could live 99 lives, we would keep you in prison for all of them. That is the way that we want to judge people. That is the kind of judgment with which we want to hold in our hands. And that is the kind of innate understanding of judgment that we have inside of us with which we approach things like eschatology. I think this is in part the reason that we want those that believe in a pre-trib rapture want to believe that we would be taken up and not suffer like all of the heathens would suffer. It's part of the reason I think that some of us would believe in the idea of a rapture at all. Because we want to believe that we will be taken up and that those that are to be judged will receive as much punishment as they could. It's part of the reason that some of us, I think Joe talked about the idea that maybe at the end, the lake of fire, is there the possibility that souls actually cease being? Some of us don't even like the idea of that because there's an element of us that wants people to suffer forever. It's the reason we give people 99 life sentences on top of each other. Because there's something about it that causes us, judgment gets into us, and we want people to pay. But when we look at this word from Jesus that says, stay awake, stay aware, I want us to talk about at our tables for a few minutes, what does it mean to stay awake and stay aware? Because I do believe that as you guys continue to talk about this discussion, what you believe about this discussion informs the way that you will stay awake. It could change the way that you are aware of things. 
you might see an earthquake happen on the other side of the world or a tornado happen in Oklahoma and think that that's part of God's judgment as the end approaches. Or you might see someone that is far from God. You might think, well, they're just a part of the apostate. They're, they're forever lost anyway. The way that you believe about these things affects the way that you live the rest of your life, whether you know it or not. So the first thing I want you to discuss, and feel free to come up with your favorite Bible verses that are related to this. What does it mean to be awake? Jesus said over and over again, stay awake, stay aware. Does it mean that we are to be code breakers? Are we to read Dan Brown books all week long looking for how we crack the codes? Did Jesus really get married and have a child? Or does it mean that we are supposed to be discerning? What does it mean for us to stay awake? What does it mean for us to stay aware? I'm going to give you a couple minutes to discuss around your table and then I want a couple of your comments. Ready? Your mark, get set, go. All right. Do we have a handheld microphone anywhere? All right. Raise your hand if you have an opinion about what does it mean to stay awake. Not everyone at once. Here we go. Well, what we think we're, when we're mentioning um, wanting to stay awake, when you've got people that you are aware of, if you're discerning the spiritual, I guess, temperature of what God's doing in the world, and kind of, there are signs that we can watch for in the Bible that we can see in today's life, like, yeah, that's, that's happening, but not letting that become your primary focus our main focus, the main thing that God wants is all of his creation to be with him. He wants all that he loves to be with him. So that murderer who we think deserves 99 life sentences, he loves that person just as much as he loves us. And yes, we all deserve that sentence. And so our ultimate goal in watching is being able to love people right where they're at and help bring them to the kingdom. And I think that's our primary goal, no matter where we're at um, in accordance to the end times or Christ coming back, because I know that there are family members of mine that I don't want to miss out in spending eternity with in heaven. Mm. I don't want to have to see them, their souls, tormented forever. I want them to be in heaven with me, and God wants them more than I do. So when we're being watchful, I think we need to love, be like Christ, no matter where we're at, to who we're at, no matter what time it is in the spiritual calendar. Should we pray and dismiss at this point? I mean, that's, that's pretty good. Anyone else? Um, kind of playing off uh, that last, you know, that, that last go. Um, something also that kind of needs to be brought to our attention is, for example, the tornadoes or, you know, earthquakes in Japan, what separates, uh, where can we draw the line between natural, you know, just physics, everyday earth life against God's judgment? There's almost, us as humans can't make that, I guess, connection. Um, I mean, we can make assumptions, but uh, I, I guess that's kind of a, 
a point of confusion. Yeah. Well, let me address that real quick. I, someone posted something on Facebook the other day, and as I do sometimes, what I'll do is I'll, I'll write a response to something on Facebook and then delete it. So basically, I'll, just, I'll write it out to think about what I would say if I was actually going to post it. I never actually post it because I know that it's just going to cause more trouble and people are going to pick apart every little thing you said. But someone, someone was saying that um, in the wake of everything that's happened in Oklahoma, you know, they, they said, well, where's your God now? You obviously prayed after the first ones and now it just happened again. So why don't you stop praying and start giving? And I do find it's, that it's interesting, the idea that people get angry at the idea of an omnipotent God when something like a natural disaster happens because there are foolish Christians that make foolish comments trying to connect the idea of judgment to something that nature did. Yes, God created nature and God has allowed nature to take its course. God allows nature to create earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes, but God is not putting his finger down into the weather clouds and stirring it up and making it happen to put his judgment on to people. Because I, I think that a part of this discussion is that we learn that why would God continually do that to us over and over again when he's already told us that there will be a final judgment? I think that part of Jesus telling us that there would be earthquakes is that in Mark 13 when he says there will be earthquakes and there will be famines and there will be wars, immediately after that he says, but do not worry for it is not yet time. He says that those are precursor things. And so I wonder if they're not supposed to be more so as talking about being awake and being aware. What if every time a hurricane happens or every time a tornado happens or anything like that happens, it's something that is happening in creation and in nature, and it's meant to remind us that things will be recreated someday and those things won't happen anymore. And that those are things that are meant to remind us that the people that could potentially be impacted by those things at any given moment that nature builds up to that point, they need to have known who Christ was before it. But that also means that we need to be wise in how we say things about those kinds of things. We don't say that a tornado was judgment on somebody. But we do say, how am I grieved at the people that the gospel was not shared with yet before that tornado happened? Does that make sense? So that's just my personal opinion. Um, hi, is this working? Staying awake, what does it look like? Right over here. Okay. Nice and loud. Are we good? Hello. Hi. Um, I've had a very interesting journey. The last uh, six years of my life, I have been a pagan. And, and I was raised as a Christian um, from when I was like Creator Roll. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember Creator Roll or not. But, and so I've had a very interesting life path that has brought me back to the church. Um, and so I have met lots of interesting people that I'm very happy to have met and known, and people that I'd rather not have known. 
And when he keeps talking, when Jesus is talking about being aware and being awake, I think he means it metaphorically. Mm-hmm. I have met several people in the pagan community, secular communities, Christian communities. I mean, I've met a lot of people. Um, and there's people who are not aware. There's people who like to keep their eyes closed and their ears closed, and they just follow, they just want to listen to what they makes them feel good. Mm. Um, as you notice, over the last 10 years, they have those, it's all about me shirts. You know, for kids, it's all about me, it's all about me. And, and that, um, and you see that when you watch TV and you see the media and all these things, is we're supposed to look pretty and we're supposed to be perfect and we're supposed to be like Angelina Jolie and things of this nature. And people are only hearing and seeing what they choose to hear and see. And I think Jesus is calling us to be brave and courageous, to open our eyes, take off the blinders, take off our earplugs, and really listen to what's going on and really see what's going on because it's a really scary world out there when you do take off those blinders and you do take out the earplugs. And that's personally why I'm back in the church. But my journey has taken me to a place that I I know it's the right place. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me, um, I want to show you a video clip, and, and I'll warn you, I mean, it's, it's about 10 minutes long, but I like story, and I feel like when you start cutting apart a piece of a story, it's not as effective. So I want, I want you to watch this, and I think that this, to me, gives a good picture of what, what being aware or being awake might look like. Get the syringe as well. We may need to give them an epinephrine shot. They're doing this on TV. You're dancing? Yeah, like this. You want to see it? I'll bring the TV in here. We know the battle turned around in the Middle East. Three small cities there found a primitive method to defeat them. We have no further details at this time.
for dinner. You love hawks. It was meant to be. Does it hurt? I don't feel much. I will. Tell Bo to listen to her brother. He'll always take care of her. I will. And tell Grim. I'm here. Tell him. See. Tell him to see. And tell Meryl to swing away. yourself is what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs, sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Is it possible there are no coincidences?
catch him, give him a minute. Yeah. I think last words are really important. Jesus' last words to his disciples in the book of Matthew weren't stay awake. His last words were, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I think that staying awake, staying aware, has more to do with believing that he's always with us so that when we see things that we believe he's present than being afraid of something that may or may not happen. And in the spirit of M. Night Shyamalan, I want to introduce a word to you. It's called preterism. Looks like preterism, but it's preterism. The reason I say that is because a lot of the things that we read in the Bible that we take as end time scriptures, we read the story of the bridegroom, we read the story, a lot of stories that Jesus told about his kingdom. Uh, maybe even a lot of stuff that we read in the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, that we take as meaning something that is future that will happen then. The word preterism, this is the teaching and idea that all, if not most, of those things that we read and take as being still in the future from us now actually apply from the point of Jesus Christ to the year 70 A.D. And that when Jesus is telling these, these stories, because when you read in the book of Mark 13, or, um, or is it Matthew 25? One of these two, where his disciples say to him, yeah, Mark, his disciples say, hey, look at these beautiful buildings. Look at these temples. Look how... Awesome they are. And then he says, not one brick of these buildings will stand on top of the other. And this is where he goes into a chapter-long description of what we generally take as the end of time will look like. But in the context of Mark chapter 13, he's talking about what the end of what their city might look like. So, 
my encouragement to you this week, I always want to leave you taking something with you. I would encourage you to look through the Gospels. Look for the stories about the end. And take this idea of preterism into account. That in the year 70, that Jerusalem was destroyed. That all of the Gospels and all of the Scripture that we read was written before the year 70. We have the benefit of time and history to look at the things that were written and possibly understand that they've got more than one meaning. The idea that, that it could be, everything that we read could be about a day that has not yet come. It might be only about a day that actually did happen. Or it might be about both. But no matter where you end up, Trust more in Jesus' last words that He'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, whatever that means. Amen? Amen. I'll just close in prayer. Thank you, God, that you are sending your Son again to return. That is the most basic thing that I think we can all agree on. I pray that you give us wisdom to overcome the foolishness of thinking we have it all figured out. Give us patience as the rest of this month we talk about eschatology and what will happen at the end. And since none of us are at the end, since none of us have seen the end, help us choose our words wisely. Help our minds to trust you as well as our hearts. And I pray that the things that we believe truly do affect the way that we live our lives. That if we really do believe, literally, not just theoretically, but literally, that you are returning. That it will affect the way that we talk to our family, to our friends, to the people in our city that do not yet know you. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people said, amen. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy your summer. Thank you for listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.